For this episode of the Historical Belfast podcast, I've decided to take a walk around Belfast City Cemetery on the Falls Road. A remarkable burial ground that, when inspected more closely, offers its own insight into Belfast's complex and multi-layered history. However, I'm going to avoid providing a history of the cemetery on this occasion because I think that this deserves an episode of its own later down the line. So instead, and as part of the Sandy Road miniseries, which has only one episode left after this one, I've had a look around the cemetery for some Sandy Road-related graves. So, come and take a walk with me and see what I've found. I'm standing here overlooking a section of the cemetery referred to as the Poor Ground, in which almost 63,000 people have been buried since the very first a young girl called Annie Collins on the 4th of August, 1869. Graves in the poor ground were not deemed to be filled until five interments had taken place in each. Around two months after the burial of Annie Collins, a Sandy Row woman called Rose Dilworth was buried in the poor ground. Rose was a mill worker who lived at 62 T Lane in Sandy Row. Her death certificate records that she died in the general hospital from a head injury. Burial records state that she was killed in T Lane Mill and that three to 4,000 people, presumably work colleagues, attended her funeral. There's absolutely nothing to mark Rose's grave, or any other grave in the poor ground for that matter, other than sections of open ground in the cemetery. Tea Lane was built in the 1820s and ran from Sandy Road to Linfield Road. The houses were for mill workers who worked in the surrounding textile mills and brickworks. Tea Lane changed its name to Rowland Street, and six of the original houses can be found in the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum at Coltrell. I'm now beside the poignant grave of the McCutcheon family. And in fact, the last time I was up here and looked at this headstone, it had fallen down flat on its face, uh, but it seems to have been repaired, so fair play to whoever has um, fixed that in the meantime. The grave plot contains the remains of eight children aged six months to seven years and also that of an adult. At the time of each of their deaths, the children's burial records contain different addresses, but it's clear that there's a strong Sandy Row connection. In chronological order then, they were Louisa, aged 21 months from 15 Barrington Street, Donegal Road, who died from diarrhoea on the 17th of July, 1895. Margaret, Aged 11 months from 27 Air Street, York Road, died from convulsions on the 18th of June, 1897. William, aged four months from Britannic Street, Sandy Road, who died on the 5th of September, 1899. Daniel, aged seven months from 38 Tavana Street, Donegal Road, died from diarrhoea, 5th of October, 1902. Mary Jane, aged 18 months from City Street, Sandy Row, died from whipping cough on the 4th of February, 1910. Mary Lenora, aged seven, also from City Street, Sandy Row, died from whipping cough just two days later, on the 6th of February, 1910. Hannah, aged six months from 160 Matilda Street, Sandy Row, died from pneumonia on the 15th of January, 1911. Samuel, aged 18 months, from 1 Lawyer Street, Sandy Row, died on the 4th of January, 1916. The lone adult was 61-year-old Agnes Kearns from 12 Rowland Street in Sandy Row, who died from bronchitis. Now this headstone, 
I think, reminds us of the vulnerability of children to the variety of diseases and infections that ravaged parts of the city of Belfast in the 19th and 20th century. Children dying in large numbers was a common enough occurrence. An example of this is the year that Margaret McCutcheon died from convulsions. In September 1897, Henry Whitaker, who was the medical superintendent for Belfast, reported to the Belfast Corporation, now the Belfast City Council, on the number of deaths between the 22nd of July and 25th of August that year. In this 35-day period, 370 children died in Belfast. 276 of these were less than a year old, and 94 of them were aged 1 to 5 years. The main killer was diarrhoea, something which is unheard of today followed by the wasting disease, uh, Titus. In his report, Whitaker states that the health of the city is very unsatisfactory and its death rate was abnormally high. In the 10-year period between 1884 and 1894, Belfast, at the pinnacle of its wealth and industrial power, had a higher percentage death rate per 1,000 people than most of the big cities in Great Britain. In the same period, the death rate in Belfast had either increased or remained stationary, while in other cities it had diminished. Appalling housing conditions and sanitary conditions, the building of slum dwellings on sites that were previously used as dumps, large construction of streets and ineffectual administration of public health acts, widespread poverty, hunger, long working hours in mills and factories, especially for women and children, inadequate health provision, these are some of the main factors which put Belfast on top of the death rate list in the industrial cities of the United Kingdom. Now I walk down towards the front of Belfast City Cemetery, I'm right beside the road now, so the traffic's quite noisy. But I'm standing now at the grave of Annie Bridget, also William Bridget Sr. and William Bridget Jr. Now the Bridgets lived at 98 Great Victoria Street, but they had a strong connection to Sandy Row through the Orange Order. And indeed, they featured on a previous episode of the podcast, which focused on Sandy Row Orange Hall. On the headstone, Annie Bridget is referred to as the first worshipful mistress of Ireland's First Lady's LOL Number no. 1. Annie was married to William Bridget, who for 60 years was a designer and painter of banners commissioned by Orange Lodges across Ireland, Britain, Canada and the United States of America. William was also a senior Orange man in his own right. He held a number of positions in the Orange Institution, including Deputy Grand Master of the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland, and a trustee of Sandy Row Orange Hall. He died aged 79 on the 14th of June 1932. Above the inscriptions is a symbol in the degree of a master mason, the Masonic symbol of the all-seeing eye set inside a square and compass. On the right side face of the stone is an inscription remembering their son, Sergeant William H. Bridget, who died at the Battle of Messines with D Company the 9th Battalion Royal Irish Rifles, the West Belfast Volunteers, on the 7th of June 1917. His body isn't here though. He's buried where he fell, in Belgium, at a small military cemetery at Spanbrock Molen. 
The Orange Order named the Bridget Memorial Sandy Row Guiding Star Loyal Orange Lodge in memory of this fallen brother. Staying with the orange theme, I'm now standing at a huge obelisk for an important Irish Unionist, who's described here as a faithful pastor, gifted orator, and loyal Irish patriot. The loyal Irish patriot line seems like a contradiction of terms, but it's a relic from a time in history when Irish identity was happily embraced by Unionists, an issue that was touched on in a previous podcast on the shipyard poet from Sandy Row, Thomas Carnduff. This is the grave of Richard Rutledge Kane, leading orange man and rector of Christ Church at the corner of Durham Street. Kane also featured in a previous episode on the 19th century riots in Sandy Row. As Grand Master of the Orange Order in Belfast, Kane played a key role in the campaign against Gladstone's first home rule bill. He was also a member of the Grand Lodge of Ireland, Vice President of the Ulster Loyalist Union and Belfast Conservative Association, and also a member of 314 Masonic Lodge. As a leading opponent of home rule, he and the Reverend Hugh Hanna, Roaring Hugh Hanna, accompanied Lord Randolph Churchill onto the platform at a meeting of Conservatives and Unionists in the Ulster Hall on the 22nd of February, 1886. Speaking on behalf of the Grand Orange Lodge, Cain opened the proceedings by outlining Unionist opposition to home rule. Quote, in regard to the policy of weak concession to Irish rebel clamour, which we have long deplored, Irish loyalists, to the number of a million and a half, have drawn the line at repeal of the Union and the establishment of a separate parliament in Dublin. End of quote. A Catholic priest, Father Tohill, publicly accused Cain and Hugh Hanna of inciting Protestants during the anti-home rule riots of 1886. After Hannah's death on the 2nd of February 1892, Cain chaired a meeting in Clifton Street Orange Hall to raise money for the erection of a statue in memory of the Reverend Hannah. On the 31st of March 1894, a bronze statue of Hannah was erected in Carlisle Circus and it remained there until it was blown up by the IRA on the 1st of March 1970. Cain was also reputedly a speaker of the Irish language and a patron of the Gaelic League. He is named in the Gaelic Journal, issued on the 1st of December 1895, as being one of its patrons. In the Unionist Convention, held on the 17th of June 1892, the Reverend Cain was thought to be responsible for the prominent display of the Irish slogan, Erin Gobra. On the 22nd of April 1898, Rutledge Cain laid the foundation stone for the West Belfast Orange Hall on the Shankill Road, and there was also a lodge named in his honour, Cain Memorial Temperance Independent Lodge. Now, just reading the obelisk here, the inscription on the right side face of the stone reads, His great talents as order and divine were devoted to the service of his country by the faithful preaching of the gospel, the defence of constitutional principles, and especially with courage and success contending against the Home Rule Bill as a proposal calculated to lead to the dismemberment of the British Empire and the disruption of the United Kingdom.
At the top of Linfield Road off Sandy Row was the Linfield Mill. And it has a personal connection to me actually as my grandmother worked there. However, at the end of the 19th century, employees of the mill took a decision that has shaped the history of local football ever since. Bob McClurg, an employee in the mill, led a deputation consisting of John Torrance, Sam Rainey, Hugh Gordon, Sam Ray and Harry McElveen to ask the mill's directors for permission to form a football team and to use the ground at the back of the mill. Permission was granted and in March of 1886, Linfield Athletic was officially founded. Initially, membership of the team was limited to its employees, but it was clear that if success was to be achieved, then the team should be open to all. Over the years, some of Linfield's most celebrated players came from Sandy Row. Indeed, one of them, John Peden, who played for the original Linfield Athletic Club in 1886, is buried here at Belfast City Cemetery in Section L1. John Peden, nicknamed Float, but better known as Johnny to those who knew him, was born on the 20th of July 1863 near the Mays Racecourse. He lived at addresses in Sandy Row, including Schomburg Street, and later at 150 Sandy Row. His younger brother, Richard Peden, was also a Linfield player, who was born in 1873 and who died in 1940. Peden was an outside left. He made his debut on the 11th of September 1886. He was also a club committee member at the time, something which is unheard of now. In 1893, he became the first Irish player to turn out for Manchester United. Then they were known as Newton Heath, where he played for a season before joining Sheffield United. Then, after a stint at Distillery, Peden returned to his local club Linfield in 1898, before eventually retiring from the game in 1905. At Linfield, he made a total of 209 appearances, scoring 144 goals in that time. He won three Irish League titles and four Irish Cups. Peden was also an Irish international, scoring seven goals in 24 appearances, including a winning goal in 1897 against Wales. Later, when he subsequently opened a confectioner's shop called The Forward at 150 Sandy Row, where he also lived, he displayed the match ball in the shop window, along with a sign which read, Here is the ball that did the trick. Inside is the man who gave it a kick. In 1934, John Peden was elected as an honorary life member of Linfield Football Club. He died aged 81 on the 15th of September 1944. Belfast City Cemetery contains a number of Commonwealth War Graves Commission plots for those that died as a result of the First World War. It also contains many family and unmarked graves for servicemen, as well as memorial inscriptions for those buried elsewhere. Whilst preparing the recent three-part episodes on Sandy Row and the Great War, it struck me that several of the men referred to were actually buried here in City Cemetery. There was Private David Hiles of 36 Boyne Square, Sandy Row, who was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal while serving with the 1st Battalion King's Royal Rifle Corps. His DCM was awarded for conspicuous bravery at Gavinci on the 10th of March 1915. Unfortunately though, in August 1918, Hiles, who by this time was now a sergeant, 
died at the age of 24 from the effects of gas and was buried here in the cemetery. William Bingham of the 10th Royal Irish Rifles, the South Belfast Volunteers, died on the 6th of August 1918, having been wounded at the Battle of the Somme in July 1916. Bingham died in the Thompson Memorial home where he had been resident for just three weeks. He was then buried on the 8th of August here at Belfast City Cemetery with military honours. Bingham's son, also called William, was awarded the Military Medal for Bravery while serving with the 8th Royal Irish Rifles, the East Belfast Volunteers, and he appears to have survived the war. William Senior's brother, Thomas Bingham, died with the 10th Royal Irish Rifles on the 6th of August 1917, and today he is commemorated on the Menningate Memorial at Ypres. In November then, and as the war was drawing to a close, Rifleman John Edmondson was lost while serving with the 7th Royal Irish Rifles. Edmondson, aged 45, was from 20 Beg Street, and he is also buried here in Belfast City Cemetery. Rifleman William Davis, of 103 Charles Street, died on the 21st of November 1918. He had been transferred from the Royal Irish Rifles to the Labour Corps prior to his death. Also, Private Joseph Morrison of 19 Boyne Square, who died on the 27th of December 1920, over two years after the war had ended. Both Rifleman William Davis and Joseph Morrison, both who died after the armistice in November 1918, are buried here in Belfast City Cemetery. I've come up towards the top of the cemetery because here you'll find a memorial stone for the Belfast Blitz that was unveiled on the 22nd of October 1951 by the Lord Mayor of Belfast. It commemorates 154 unidentified men, women and children killed during the Second World War air raids in April and May 1941. Among the remains in this plot are some of those killed in Blythe Street on Easter Tuesday. 1941. For a more detailed account of what happened in the Blythe Street Blitz, I'd encourage you to listen back to episode 14 of this podcast. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Historical Belfast podcast. If you'd be interested in joining me for a walking tour of Belfast City Cemetery, particularly for groups, please get in touch via email on info at historicalbelfast.com. I'm hoping in 2022 to be out doing many more historical walks in our city. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on Apple and Spotify so that you never again miss an episode of the podcast. And if you can, Please tell one or two others who you think might enjoy it. This Sandy Row mini-series is brought to you in collaboration with Belfast South Community Resources and also with the support of the South Belfast Urban Village Initiative.